Section 12 of the Crusades by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 The Loss of Jerusalem. Part 2. Guy was king, but Raymond of Tripoli refused him his allegiance. Guy besieged him in Tiberias, and Raymond made a treaty with Saladin. But Saladin was now minded to seize a higher prey. He was master of Syria and Egypt. He was resolved that the Crescent should once more displace the cross on the Mosque of Omar. Pretext for the war were almost superfluous, but he had an abundance of them in the ravages committed by barons of the Latin kingdom on the lands and the property of Moslems. Fifty thousand horsemen and a vast army on foot gathered under his standard when he declared his intention of attacking Jerusalem. But their first assault was on the castle of Tiberius. On hearing these ominous tidings, Raymond of Tripoli at once laid aside all thought of private quarrels. Hastening to Jerusalem, he said that the safety of his own city was a very secondary matter, and earnestly besought Guy to confine himself to a strictly defensive war, which would soon reduce the invader to the extremity of distress. The advice was wise and good, but the Grand Master of the Templars fastened on the very nobleness of his self-sacrifice and the disinterestedness of his counsel as proof of some sinister design which they were intended to hide. Had it been Baldwin III to whom he was speaking, the insinuation would have been thrust aside with scorn and disgust. To the mean mind of Guy it carried with it its own evidence, and it was resolved to meet the Saracen on ground of his own choosing. The troops of Saladin were already distressed by heat and thirst when they encountered the Latin army of Jerusalem in July of 1187. The issue of the first day's fighting was undecided, but the heat of a Syrian summer night was for the Christians rendered more terrible by the stifling smoke of woods set on fire by the orders of Saladin. Parched with thirst, and well knowing that on the event of that day depended the preservation of the Holy Sepulchre, the crusaders at sunrise rushed with their fierce war-cries on the enemy. Before them the golden glory of morning lit up the radiant shores of the tranquil sea where the Galilean fishermen had heard from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth the word of life. But nearer still was a memorial yet more holy, a pledge of divine favor yet more assuring. On a hillock hard by was raised the relic of the true cross, and this hillock was many times a rallying point during this bloody day. There was little of generalship, perhaps on either side, and where men are left to mere hard fighting, numbers must determine the issue. The hosts of Saladin far outnumbered those of the Latin chiefs, and for these retreat ended in massacre. The king and the grand master of the Templars were taken prisoners, the holy relic which had spurred them on to desperate exertion fell into the hands of the infidels. The victory of Saladin was rich in its fruits. Tiberius was taken, Beritas, Acre, Caesarea, Jaffa opened their gates. Tyre alone was saved by the heroism of Conrad of Montferrat, brother of the first husband of Queen Sibylla. Not caring to undertake a regular siege, Saladin marched to Ascalon and offered its defenders an honorable peace, 
which after some hesitation was accepted. The rejection of Raymond's advice had left Jerusalem practically at the mercy of Saladin. It was crowded with people, but the garrison was scanty, and the armies which should have defended it were gone. Their presence would not probably have availed to give a different issue to the siege, but it must have added fearfully to its horrors. Saladin had made up his mind that the Latin kingdom must fall, and he would have fought on until either he or his enemies could fight no longer. Numbers, wealth, resources, military skill, instruments of war, all combined to give him advantages before which mere bravery must sooner or later go down, and protracted resistance meant nothing more than the infliction of useless misery. Saladin may have been neither a saint nor a hero, but it cannot be denied that his temper was less fierce and his language more generous than that of the Christians who under Godfrey had deluged the city with blood. He had no wish, he said, so to defile a place hallowed by its associations for Moslems as well as Christians, and if the city were surrendered, he pledged himself not merely to furnish the inhabitants with the money which they might need, but even to provide them with new homes in Syria. But superstition and obstinacy are to all intents and purposes words of the same meaning. The offer, honourable to him who made it, and carrying no ignominy to those who might accept it, was rejected, and Saladin made a vow that entering the city as an armed conqueror, he would offer up within it a sacrifice as awful as that by which the crusaders had celebrated their loathsome triumph. Most happily for others, most nobly for himself, he failed to keep his vow to the letter. Fourteen days sufficed to bring the siege to an end, the Christians had done what they could to destroy the military engines of their enemies. The golden ornaments of the churches had been melted down and turned into money, but no solid advantage was gained by all their efforts. The conviction of the Christian that death brought salvation to the champions of the cross, the assurance of the Moslem that to those who fell fighting for the creed of Islam, the gates of paradise were at once opened, only added to the desperation of the combatants and to the fearfulness of the carnage. At length the besieged discovered that the walls near the gate of St. Stephen had been undermined, and at once they abandoned all hope of safety, except from miraculous intervention. Clergy and laity crowded into the churches, their fears quickened by the knowledge that the Greeks within the city were treating with the enemy. The remembrance of Saladin's offer now came back with more persuasive power, but to the envoys whom they sent, the stern answer was returned, that he was under a vow to deal with the Christians, as Godfrey and his fellows had dealt with the Saracens. Yet conscious or unconscious of the inconsistency of his words with the oath which he professed to have sworn, he promised them his mercy if they would at once surrender the city. The besieged resolved to trust the word of the conqueror, as they could not resist his power. The agreement was made that the nobles and fighting men should be taken to Tyre, which still held out under Conrad, that the Latin inhabitants should be redeemed at the rate of ten crowns of gold for each man, five for each woman, one for each child, and that failing this ransom they should remain slaves. 
on the sick and the helpless he waged no war and although the knights of the hospital were among the most determined of his enemies he would allow their brethren to remain for a year in their attendance on the sufferers who could not be moved away in the exasperation of a religious warfare now extended over nearly a century these terms were very merciful it may be said that this mercy was the right of a people who submitted to the invader and that in the days of godfrey and peter the hermit the defenders had resisted to the last it is enough to answer that the capitulation of the latins was a superfluous ceremony and that saladin knew it to be so while if the same submission had been offered to the first crusaders it would have been sternly and fiercely refused four days were allowed to the people to prepare for their departure on the fifth they passed through the camp of the enemy the women carrying or leading their children the men bearing such of their household goods as they were able to move on the approach of the queen and her ladies in the garb and with the gestures of suppliants saladin himself came forward and with genuine courtesy addressed to them words of encouragement and consolation cheered by his generous language they told them that for their lands their houses and their goods they cared nothing their prayer was that he would restore to them their fathers their husbands and their brothers saladin granted their request added his alms for those who had been left orphans or destitute by the war and remitted a portion of the ransom appointed for the poor in this way the number of those who remained unredeemed was reduced to eleven or twelve thousand and saracenic slavery although degrading was seldom as cruel as the slavery which has but as yesterday been extinguished by the most fearful of recent wars the entry of saladin into jerusalem was accompanied by the usual signs of triumph amidst the waving banners and the clash of martial music he advanced to the mosque of omar on the summit of which the christian cross still flashed in the clear air a wail of agony burst from the christians who were present as this emblem was hurled down to the earth and dragged through the mire for two days it underwent this indignity while the mosque was purified from its defilements by streams of rose-water and dedicated afresh to the worship of the one god adored by islam the crosses the relics the sacred vessels of the christian sanctuaries which had been carefully stowed away in four chests had fallen into the hands of the conquerors and it was the wish of saladin to send them to the caliph of the prophet as the proudest trophies of his victory even this wish he generously consented to forego the chests were left in the keeping of the patriarch and the price put upon them fifty-two thousand golden byzants was paid by richard of england conrad still held out entire nor was he induced to surrender even when saladin himself assailed its walls the siege was raised and the next personage to appear before its gates was guy of lusignan who having regained his freedom insisted on being admitted as lord of the city the grand master of the templars seconded his demand the reply was short and decisive the people would own no other master than the gallant knight who had so nobly defended them but the escape of tyre had no effect on the general issue of the war town after town submitted to saladin and the long series of his triumphs closed 
when he entered the gates of Antioch. Eighty-eight years had passed away since the crusaders of Godfrey and Tancred had stood triumphant on the walls of the holy city, and during all those years the Latin kingdom had seldom rested from wars and forays, from feuds and dissensions of every kind. From the first it displayed no characteristics which could give it any stability. From the first it exhibited signs which foreboded its certain downfall. 1. It sanctified treachery, for it rested on the principle that no faith was to be kept with the unbeliever, and the sowing of wind by the constant breach of solemn compact made them reap the whirlwind. A right of pasturage round Peneus had been granted to the Mohammedans by Baldwin III. When the ground was covered with their sheep, the Christian troops burst in, murdered the shepherds, and drove away their flocks. Not with the sanction, we may hope, of the most high-minded of the Latin kings of Jerusalem. 2. It recognized no title to property except in those who professed the faith of Christ, and the power to commit injustice with practical impunity tended still further to demoralize the people. 3. It gave full play to the passions of men in random wars and petty forays, while it did nothing to keep up or to promote either military science or the discipline without which that science becomes useless. 4. It was marked by an almost total lack of statesmanship. In a country so circumstanced, a wise ruler would strain every nerve to conciliate the conquered people, to strengthen himself by alliances which should be firmly maintained, and by treaties which should be scrupulously kept, to weaken such states as he might fail to win over to his friendship, by anticipating combinations which might bring with them fatal dangers for his power. That the history of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem presents a mournful and even ludicrous contrast to this picture it must surely be unnecessary to say. In the case of Egypt alone did the Latin kings show some sense of the course which prudence called upon them to take, and even here this course was followed with miserable indecision, and at last disgracefully abandoned through mere lust of gold. 5. It had to deal with an immorality not of its own creating, but which in mere regard to its own safety it should have striven to keep well in check. No such efforts were made, and the words of William of Tyre, even if taken with qualification, when he speaks of the Latin women, point to a state of things which must involve grave and imminent peril. 6. It was the misfortune of this kingdom that it was called into being by troops of adventurers banded together, it cannot be said confederated, for a religious rather than a political purpose, in other words, for personal rather than for public ends. It started, therefore, without any principle of cohesion. The warriors who engaged in the enterprise might abandon it when they thought that they had fulfilled the conditions of their vow, and although the continuance of their efforts was indispensably needed for the military and political success of the undertaking. 7. The private and personal character of these enterprises led to the perpetuation and multiplication of private and personal interests, and thus to the endless divisions and feuds between the barons of the kingdom, which were a constant scandal and menace, and which led frequently to deliberate treachery. 8. It encouraged or permitted or was compelled to tolerate 
the growth of societies which arrogated to themselves an independent jurisdiction and thus rendered impossible a central authority of sufficient coercive power the origin of the military orders may have been in the highest degree edifying the knights templars might begin as the humble guardians of the holy places the knights hospitallers may have been the poor brothers of st john bound to the service of the sick and helpless among the pilgrims of the cross but in a land where they might at any time encounter a merciless or at least a detested enemy they were justified in bearing arms the necessity of bearing arms involved the need of discipline and the discipline of an enthusiastic fraternity cut off from the world and centred upon itself cannot fail to become formidable the natural strength of these orders was increased by immunities and privileges granted partly by the latin kings of jerusalem but in greater part by the popes the hospitallers as bestowing their goods to feed the poor and to entertain pilgrims were freed from the obligation of paying tithe or of giving heed to interdicts even if these were laid upon the whole country while it was expressly asserted that no patriarch or prelate should dare to pass any sentence of excommunication against them in other words a society was called into existence directly antagonistic to the clergy and an irreconcilable conflict of claims was the inevitable consequence nor can we be surprised to find the clergy complaining that the knights not content with the immunity secured to themselves gave shelter to persons who not belonging to their order but lying under sentence of excommunication sought to place themselves under their protection but if the knights of the hospital had thus their feuds with the clergy they had feuds still more bitter with the rival order of the templars with different interests and different aims the one sought to promote enterprises against which the other protested or stickled about points of precedence when common decency called for harmonious action or withheld its aid when that aid was indispensable for the very safety of the state thus we have the triple discord of the king and his barons struggling against the claims of the clergy and the military orders in conflict with the barons and the clergy alike of a state so circumstanced the words are emphatically true that a house divided against itself shall not stand end of section twelve